Thanks, Drew. Um, great to see all of you guys. Uh, we were not here last week, but we weren't bunky. We were sent by user community to a church in PE, or if the cool kids say, known as GQ. GQ. Um, their church is called Covenant Grace. They are in that city. If you know anyone in uh, GQ who's looking for a church, we can highly commend um, this, this congregation. They meet very similar circumstances to us. They have a church that meets before they do, who's building it is, and then they quickly rush in, get the band set up, and everything. At quarter past ten they go, and then again at 6 p.m. We had a wonderful time of ministry there over the course of the weekend. We flew in on the Friday, we were invited to someone's 50th from that night. And on Saturday, I was given the assignment of teaching all the leadership team on humility. <laughs> they couldn't have chosen a better person. <laughs> I mean, by definition, if you think you're the humility guy, you aren't the humility guy. Right? I thought that was a bit of a hospital pass, but I did my best, pointed towards Jesus, and, um, and then on Sunday, I got to minister there. So if you know anyone in GQ, tell them there's a great church to be a part of. If one day God calls to that city, Covenant Grace Church is, is fantastic and great and his wife and he will be with us again in June. We always call them out regularly just to learn from them and to grow as a, as a member of the church. If you're new to um, Common Ground, we, we are eight cities, I mean eight, eight churches in the city, but we need more than ourselves. We need a partnership and a partnership is advanced where we collaborate around just the truth that we're better together. We might have some doctrine and we're better together also for our mission together and our life together. So that's, that's where we were last Sunday. But we're back now. We're back now and we are continuing our Ezra Nehemiah series. Hopefully you've got your little, your little block, your building block. And the idea with this is we're going to be spending quite a lot of time on this. So put this on your key ring, put this you know, where you work, where you spend time, hang on the fridge. But just use it as a physical reminder of oh, what am I learning as I open up God's Word in community together? What are the lessons? How do I apply it? Is this just a history lesson or theory? Hopefully something that's changing our lives and changing the way that we are going to interact in our city. And we feel that God's called us to this book because He's called us to a theme of being firmly rooted, firm foundations, and deeply rooted. Something that says, before we go and shoot out again or over the way, there's a danger we might just be miles wide but an inch thick. Why don't we, why don't we put down roots rather? In a time of great upheaval, we've all experienced globally. What would it look like for us to come back stronger? We look at this book in particular because this is the people that have been removed from their town of Jerusalem, forcibly by the Babylonians. And for 17 years, they've been in that evil. This wasn't a temporary couple of years thing. This is a big deal. And now, for 70 years, they've got an opportunity to go back and to rebuild their lives in Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. And do you know that the majority of people don't take up the opportunity? You can't do the maths exactly, but the majority of people never leave Babylon. They go, hey man, we're happy for you that you want to go and rebuild, but we just make us part of the WhatsApp group. You know, send us updates. We're happy to kind of get the WhatsApp updates, but we're actually comfortable where we are. We're not, we're not actually going to experience upheaval again and go back. We're going to stay where we are. But today, we're going to be reading about the first wave of people that put their hands up and say, you know, we, we trust in God. We believe He's got a people. We believe He's got a place. And we're signing up. We're going to go. As I said, I think there's significance for us as we, as we come out of a global pandemic, as we come through all kinds of upheavals. Are we going to seek comfort? Or are we going to trust God? 
Are we going to keep heading and redouble our efforts in the wrong direction, or are we going to examine the truth and allow God's voice to be louder than anything else? So, let's read together Ezra 2. It's, it's a, a sermon on top of a particular people because it's a long list of people. Ezra 2 is not going to be on anyone's body tattooed. I can guarantee you. In Romans 8, you know, the height, the depth, that might make it. Psalm 23, popular, popular. But Ezra 2 ain't going to be a winning bet today. I'm going to just read from Ezra 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Zerachiah, Rehum, Melchiah, Bolshan, Moshe, Igva, Rehum, and Barnum. Now, let's pause there. The names are going to keep coming, but let's pause there. Verse 2 includes some names that are quite important to just orientate ourselves. Because although there are people that are on the move to come back, they are individual people. Much like us, God looked at us today. We're their people gathered at some point, but there are individual stories behind each and every one of us. So let's look at Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is from the line of David. God had promised that from King David, he would always keep a line. And good news, Zerubbabel is exactly that person. The line of David, the kingly person that's part of the crew. And just about Jesua, he's from the line of Aaron. Moses' right-hand man, that, that, the family that's been set aside to be priests. That is who Jeshua is. Now, Nehemiah, Mordecai, there's some familiar names and there's some conjecture. Is this another Nehemiah? Or is this the same Nehemiah we're going to read a little bit later? But the point, the point is, when you can debate all these things, is that if you count up the numbers, you're going to get 11 names there. And last week, when we looked at chapter 1, there was the first person we met them called Shez Bazaar. You've got 12 names of leaders that are coming. And the reason is that there were 12 tribes of Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob. What is happening here is God is reminding his people that he is their God and they are his people. And that they are particular people that he is working through. And now he's going to describe not just the leaders, but all the people that came through. Let me just quickly read. I'm not going to go through all of them. They'll appear on the screen. The number of men of the people of Israel. So this group of civilians. The sons of Parosh, a lot of sons, 2,172. Sons of Sheftala, 372. The sons of Arak, 775. You see the rest of the sons kind of mentioned there. They're all in lines of families. Now at this point you might be going, Jewish. This is a bit heavy. Why is this in God's word? We're going to look at that in great depth. Why is this recorded? They kind of share personal story. When it comes to the end of movies and the credits roll out, how excited do you get? <laughs> Not really, right? But most uh, streaming platforms are little popular pops going the next episode like you can avoid all the pain. Just go. And that's what most of us do. But the ancestor works in the film industry. She's a makeup artist. She's actually in London at the moment working on a movie. Now let me tell you, when we watch a movie that she's been involved in, how do we feel about the credits? Suddenly we're like, oh, let's look. And then we start to notice, oh, there's a ball. Hey, 
let's not be with these conversations. Yeah, and suddenly, suddenly the credits become this fun thing because we're associated with it, we're connected to it, and this is something that kind of is significant to us. And so in the same way, the people of God would have read this and would have gone, woohoo, that's us, that's where we came from, that's our heritage. And they're just a million people that have the courage to head up to trust God. And so this list you see now is according to families. I want to pop the next list up. You'll see there that it starts to say, the sons of Bethlehem, 123. Three, the sons of Nethaphah, 56. The sons of Anathoth, we're going to get to that later, 128. What now starts happening is instead of listing according to families, they list according to places. And so God's saying, hey, it's not just a whole bunch of different families that have come together. There's a whole bunch of different places that are represented. And they're going to go back to those very places and they're going to restart them as a community. Yes, it's comfortable in Babylon, but they're getting back. It's going to take great courage, but they're on the move. So, those are civilians by family, civilians by place. Who are the next group of people? Let's read. Uh, it's the priests from verse 36, the sons of Jediah, the house of Joshua, the sons of Emma, the sons of Pasha, the sons of Haram, the sons of You'll notice there that if you total up, there are actually quite a lot of priests. In the total of people that go, priests come out to Borneos about 10%, which is quite a lot of the people. It makes a bit of sense because this was the group of people that had been set aside to represent the people of God before God. The priests were the ones getting sacrifices organized, making sure that that the people were reminded of who God was. And in captivity, for seven years in Babylonia, they would never have an opportunity to do their job. They would be unemployed for seven years, so when the opportunity comes to back, woohoo, we're coming, we're on our way. Now, the next three letters, the Levites, slightly less people signed up. The sons of Jeshua, Cadmiel, the sons of Hupia, the singers, the sons of Asa, only 128, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Altar, you see all in all, 139. You see, Israel, the people of God, had different tribes. One of them was the Levites. And the Levites were set aside to help God's people to serve the temple. But it's only priests who would do the sacrifices, who were really in the inner circle. So what, what was the difference between a Levite and a priest? Priests were from the line of Aaron, and Levites, you could be a Levite without being connected to Aaron. So the difference is, and why the numbers aren't so great, is the Levites wouldn't have been the main people, the priests. They would just be there to serve. And there's actually a little bit of a shortage of Levites. You're going to see a little bit later in the book that actually have to send a second wave and say, we need more of you guys. We need people to serve. And so those are the people so far. Civilians by family. Civilians by place. Priests, Levites, and then we have the next lot, the temple servants. The sons of Zia, the sons of Hespera, you can see here, there's a whole list of servants. And essentially these are the next group that are part of the ecosystem, doing a lot of menial labor, making sure things happen, things get cleaned, that's that crew. Next group, we've got the sons of Solomon's servants, verse 55 says the sons of Sotar, the sons of Hespera, the sons of Pekua, the sons of Jela, you can see the next wave comes. And essentially these are more servants connected to Solomon. We've gone priests, Levites, servants. Now we have a group of people who essentially have got stuck in home affairs. Okay, their affairs are not in order. The people coming back, it's very important that they are the people of God. They're a particular people. And these are the group of people that actually don't know quite how they came to be where they are. They think they're part of the people of God, but they don't have to pay for it. 
at the moment. So you'll see the following with those who came up from Teramela, Talhasha, Chera, Adama, Emma, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nicoa, also the sons, sons of her. And then interesting, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was raised or called by their name. So interesting, I mean, the practices you can take, you see the, the father's name, but in this case, they chose the mother's uh, surname. They went that route. Okay. Now, what, what of these people do we know? They sought registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. This is verse 62. But they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They could come, but they couldn't serve as the priesthood until they could clear up the home affairs situation. So, now we're coming to the end of the chapter. The whole assembly together, verse 64, was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and 200 male and female sinners, the horses were 736 mules, 245 camels, 435 donkeys, a lot of donkeys, 6,720, which warms my, you know, qualified child accountant hot. You know, I'm loving the details here. Someone has rolled up their sleeves and they have totaled it all up. Interestingly, if you total up the names of everyone mentioned and the total, there's going to be a gap. People have said, you know, what is that gap? What, what does it, the theories that go on about it? But probably the most likely example is that women and children would be the gap. And then you'd look at it and say, geez, there's a lot of men, not as many women and children. But if you think about it, you're comfortable in Babylonia. You've been called to go on a great adventure, to partner with God, to go to this new land. Who signs up for that? It's probably a lot of whole young single men without friends here. Yeah, good idea. Everyone else like, yeah, I'm probably going to wait, see how it goes. I'll happy to be part of the WhatsApp group until really clarity is confirmed. Rounding up the, the, um, the, the passage, verse 68 says, Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord, that is in Jerusalem, so they traveled all that way, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the Lord, the word, sorry, 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 years of silver, 100 priest garments. The priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Now at this point, you'd imagine I'm going to launch into a whole sermon on generosity. Don't worry, we're not going to do it this week. But the big idea is that people have come They've been stirred and they are in their towns. They're not yet living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is flattened, there's no temple, there's no wall. They have gone to the town surrounding it. They're not far away, but they're in the area. And that is where we're going to leave them this week. So, who are the people? We've now had a good look at them. There are the leaders, the 12, representing the 12 tribes, representing the 12 sons of Jacob. And along with them have come civilians, named by family and by place. Priests who are going to serve as they rebuild the sacrificial system, representing people before God. Levites who are going to help those priests fulfill their duties. Not all of them, but they're there. There are temple servants, sons of Solomon, his servants, and then they're the home affairs crew that have kind of went on for the ride, going to hopefully sort out our papers, and we're here to be part of what God's doing. The other obvious question I hope you're going to ask as you listen in is why? Why? Why this list? 
of people. I mean, verse 1 starts so nicely. There were people of the province that came up, captivity, they returned to Jerusalem, Judah, each to his own town. Why don't we just stop there? Like, then we kick on with chapter 3. Like, that would save us a whole bunch of pain, pronunciations, difficulties. Why do we have a whole chapter that includes all of these things? What is God trying to teach us in this world? And by the way, this chapter is going to be repeated in Nehemiah 7. Almost without change. The exact same list is going to be repeated. I wonder if the people themselves, when they signed up to go on this adventure, ever thought, do you know, on the tip of Africa, many, many years later, thousands of years later, people are going to be mentioning our names, our families' names. Do you know that that's going to happen? I don't think they would ever have thought that God has preserved this record, and I think He's got something for us. I think there's some things He wants to teach us. And I'm indebted to Kevin Young who helped develop a lot of thoughts that I'm going to share with you here. He's got things to teach us as we look at chapter 2. And so as we look at our hearings this week and we come and examine, I hope some of these things will hit home for us. The first thing is that I think God wants to teach us about Himself. God wants to teach us about Himself. See, he has a group of people that by all intents and purposes look like they've been forgotten. They have been promised. They've been set apart. They're going to be blessed to be a blessing. They have been warned that they've lost their way. They've been warned that a group of people would take them into captivity, and that's exactly what happened. And quite frankly, at that point, you could think, well, God clearly is written the book. God is not paying attention. God has not seen the plight. But what God wants to teach you and I today is that God never is lacking in attention. He knows where you are, what you're up to. He's bringing together the right people at the right time, at the right place. It's so important for us to see the continuity. That's why the author mentions that it's from the line of David that the rubble will come. That Joseph comes from the line of Aaron. That this is the same group of people that seemingly had got lost that are now being brought back. God is getting the gang back together again so that they can be a blessing to the world. God has the ultimate best for his kingdom and for the people in mind. See, the great lie we can believe and that they can believe is that somehow God is holding out on you. God can't be trusted. It's up to you to make the most out of life. It's a lie because it's not true. Even when circumstances can, can indicate otherwise, God is a word to bless the world through his people. Now, besides showing us that God is a promise-keeping God, that he is in control, that he has his eye on things, I think it also teaches us something about how we can go about things. You see, when we don't think God can be trusted and God's blessing us, what tends to happen is we can try and position ourselves for blessing. We can kind of force the issue, say, well, God seems to be absent here, so I better just, I better just go for it on my own. I'm not taking time to wait on God and to hear Him and to follow Him. I'm just going to try and make things happen. And there's a little story here which kind of exhibits it. Barzillai, did you read it in verse 61? The sons of Barzillai had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadites, who was called by their name. They had lost their registration papers. They were kind of excluded. What, what was the story about? If you, if you go back in time, you, you come across this particular person, Barzillai, who's from the tribe of Manasseh, so not part of the people of God. But at a time in, in David's life, he'd come alongside him. So here's the story. David's son, Absalom, rejects his dad and starts to fight his father. David has to flee, and Barzillai comes alongside David. 
doesn't have to be, but he's still something of God on David and he defends him. Barzillai has this word called man, it means man of iron. The kind of person you want in your team. So the man of iron comes alongside David, protects him against his son, and David honors him. And, and when David returns to lead the people, he asks Barzillai to go with him. He says, Come, like you've been so invaluable. Come join us. And Asher says, No, you can take my servant instead. Set him up. Would you give it to me? Give it to my servant. And so David takes his servant, and he, when he hands over his kingdom to his son, when that transition happens, when Solomon takes over the, the people of God, this is what David says in reading the 1 Kings 2. He says, Show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother, Absalom. So follow the story. Barzillai stands with David, so David, when he hands over his kingdom to his son, says, Look after these people, these sons, this family. Let us eat with us at the table. What a great gesture of hospitality and inclusion. So, fast forward a few years, there's a group of people who marry in to Barzillai's family, one of the daughters from that line. And they think, you know, our surname's a little average. I mean, it's tradition that we take our surname, but that's the sermon. That's the connection. That's where you get to eat at the, at the Lord's table. And so they switch it around. And they basically say, we, we want blessing. We want that to flow ourselves. And so they rename their whole family. They kind of say, we want our mom's name, please. And the difficulty with that is that, is that what it ends up causing is years later, as they come to try and return, the people are going, wait a second, Barzillai, you're part of Barzillai, but he, he was part of the, the tribe of Manasseh. He was left out of the people of God. He never crossed over. Why? Why are you not part of this? And there's confusion and they're stuck in the home affairs loop. Nothing is like that ever wants to be a part of. But more sincerely, what's actually happened is a group of people have kind of looked at life and gone, we need to make this happen on terms. We can't trust God. And they look for an edge. They look for an opportunity. They look for a glory that kind of was hoping to, to be there. Now, obviously, there's, there's a lesson for us. Are we, are we having the courage to trust God, even when circumstances don't look like they're working? Do we try to push for every advantage we have because we don't believe God to be true? See, we can muddy the waters and they can end up not being a blessing to us instead of trusting God. I want to be clear, the surname thing whether you've got good student, that's a cultural thing, that's a custom thing, that's not as important as whose identity are you claiming to have? And they claimed an identity that was never God's identity for them. The, the promise he had for them was so much better than trying to cling to this fake substitute one. So we learn something about God. We, we learn that God is particular, he's intentional, and, and we also learn that we can trust them rather than trying to make our own way. The second thing I think we learn when we look at these passages is we learn something about courage. We learn something about courage. These people were comfortable. They had it all set up in Babylon, Babylonia. It was going to take something big to move them. And this list is kind of put down there to one of them, to, to recognize them, to acknowledge them, and to speak to the courage that it takes to follow God. How about you? If you feel stirred by God, is it something you kind of go, oh, I don't know if I should act on it, I'm not sure I should do it, I don't know if I should leave the comfort of where I currently am, it's going to be hard, it's going to be scary, some people aren't going to like it. 
I want to be in the, the Christful or WhatsApp group and, and kind of there or thereabouts, but not genuinely get on with it. Would you have the courage, as sampled by these people, to not choose comfort, but to choose following Christ? I also think what it teaches us around courage is that sometimes courage looks a lot like humility. Obviously, I've had a weekend in GQ, so I'm somewhat of an expert on humility now. But let me tell you where I get this from. You'll see when it's listed by families, there's a whole bunch of names, but then there's also a bunch of names when it's listed by towns. You'll see from verse 21, the sons of Bethlehem, sons of Nebuchadnezzar, sons of Anathoth. I want to pause on that name, Anathoth, and take you back to Jeremiah, a prophet, speaking to the people of God before they got carried into exile. He was one of the voices. There's a long book in the Bible where he said, Guys, you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten who God is. Turn back to Him. Otherwise, destruction is going to come. You are going to be carried. Cyrus is literally and Nebuchadnezzar. They're going, to, they're going to take you away. Babylon is going to take you. He warns them. He speaks them. He believes them. Unfortunately, Jeremiah no one listens. But in one gesture, which is quite meaningful, you can read about it, Jeremiah 32. God speaks to him and says, Jeremiah, go and buy land in Anathoth. Go to that town and go buy land. Why was that quite an exceptional thing to do? Because the people of God by that stage had been besieged by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were all over the sea. They couldn't get food, they couldn't get water, they were, they were stuck in their towns. And it, let's just say it's not a great time to be doing a real estate. Well, it takes a lot of courage to do real estate. Let's just say land was incredibly cheap at that point in Anathoth because you were besieged and the land was about to become completely worthless. And Jeremiah gets a word from God to go and buy the land. Now, in order for a transaction to happen, what must the seller do? The seller must essentially say, you know what? Give me one cent. You can take the land. I agree with the verdict in the town, which is that God has abandoned us. This land is useless. And so the people of Anathoth sell the land to Jeremiah. He buys it at bargain basement prices. And this is what the Lord tells him to say to the people after he's done this real estate. He says, seal it up, keep it safe, because this reason. For the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Do this deal, seal it up, keep it safe, because my people are coming back and there will be prosperity and there will be life. And there will be agriculture and there will be, be a, a new day. And you can imagine the people going, not a chance. You have no idea what you're talking about, Jeremiah. And now, listed in Ezra 2, verse 23, the men of Anathoth, 128 men, are heading back. Seventy years, they've been sold their land for nothing. They're heading back. They're going to open up that scroll, get it out, and resume the life that God had always had for them. Do you know that sometimes courage is having the humility to say, God, I had it wrong. I underestimated you. I, I, I gave up on you when I shouldn't have. Humility is courageous action saying, you know what, God, I want to return to you the one who leads me towards life. Do you have the courage to, to humble yourself? You say, God, I've been trying to do this on my own. I actually see you all along. You are the author of life. 
I've spoken about it before, the redemptive edge, the fact that I think a lot of our lives we choose comfort and we think it's in comfort that great excitement we have, but actually in comfort, great boredom is experienced. And that God wants to close the gap between our comfort and, and the darkness that's out there all, that we're blessed to be a blessing, cause be salt to light. I've spoken about the redemptive edge before. Well, guess what? To be on the redemptive edge requires courage. People are going to say to you, as soon as you leave the comfort, they're going to say, Oh, I'm concerned about you. Oh, I must caution you. That looks dangerous. Oh, criticism. What are you doing heading back to Jerusalem? It's unwise. It's just a whole bunch of single men that don't know how to do life. What are you doing? What are you, why are you heading there? Just a reminder that a life of faith is a life of courage as we trust God and we go out despite criticism. The final thing, the final thing we do is about the church. We learn something about the church. You see, God has a particular people. Yes, they're a corporate group, but they come from families and places. They are known, they are loved, and they are listed by God. God must love lists because He has many of them. He's got a whole book called Numbers. He knows us by name. He keeps track of us by our families. And we like lists as well. One of my experiences, it was painful, to be honest, was to sit as a lecturer at UCT and go through graduation. Why it was painful was you were sometimes allocated a seat right behind where the photograph was taken. So you were in everyone's photograph. And this thing would last for two, three hours, and you had to look just happy with everyone's photograph. My mate learned the hard way that he was in everyone's photograph, and everyone complained about the guy who was like on his phone or bored behind you. I mean, graduation is a long list of people. And yet, it's a moment of great celebration. They say graduation is three hours long, and really only six seconds of it is important. But it's a different six seconds for every family when they get called up. That's the list that we want to be on. Maybe it's a merit list. Maybe it's a Fortune 500 list. Maybe it's a sports team list. Maybe it's a league table list. Maybe it's a World Cup list. There are lists of plenty in this world. But I think what God's telling us is that there's one list that really, really matters. One list that really matters. Do you see that we're talking today about a group of people back then who were exiles, who were sojourners, who were in Babylon, but they were given an opportunity to travel to Jerusalem. Do you know that today, right now, up in Seapoint, we're a group of exiles, sojourners. Jesus, when he prayed for his followers, said, you're not in the world, just as I'm not in the world. He kind of said, this isn't your home. You're an exile. You're refugees. And they had a chance to travel to Jerusalem. We've got a chance to travel to the new Jerusalem. The city that will be our eternal home. Let me read from Revelation 21, verse 22. A vision of this future home. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the city of God. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. But its light will the nation by that its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This is a city in which you want to have citizenship. But here's the deal. Nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose name is written on the list that ultimately matters, the Lamb's Book of Life, will be allowed to enter. Let's continue to read from this vision. They say they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There might be many lists that you want to get your name onto in life, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's one list that is paramount. This list of those who are in the Lamb's book of life. You see, when Jesus comes, he is the Lamb of God, sacrificed on our behalf. He represents us before the Father. But this Lamb didn't stay sacrificed, it was risen, resurrection, glory, calls, butts, ashes, in. All those, whosoever, will come. It requires great courage, it requires great humility, but what it essentially says is, I don't want to try and earn my way into the list. I acknowledge the Lamb as being the way, the truth. And the life. And that is the list that I hope, as you sit here today, you long to, to, to come towards knowing that your name is on that list because you are following the Lamb, because you're loving the Lamb, because you're worshiping the Lamb. It's the endless grace that we get to be washed by the blood of the Lamb, we get to be led by the resurrection Lamb, and then one day we get to see our names written in the Lamb's book of life. God has a list. God's always had a list. God knows particular families, particular places, particular roles, particular people. Even those of us that are stuck in home affairs and confused about what, there is a God who has invited us. Let's respond to it now. I'm going to allow the scripture just to stay up there, a moment of reflection. Are we sojourners and exiles? We have left comfort behind and said we are following the Lamb to the New Jerusalem. Trust that we are.